Come on, yeah. Hey, I don't know if you guys were here on Sunday or not, but one thing that I kind of did off the cuff, I don't know how kosher it was, I said, I'm the hype man because dynamite comes in small packages, right? Short joke. But the reality is, like, we have a reason to be excited when we're here because we get to gather under the name of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and there are people on the other side of the world that don't know Jesus. In fact, they've never even heard of Jesus, and that's a problem, you guys. So this is my last pitch for you to just consider summer teams. The fact that there are billions of people on the other side of the world that have never even been to a church. It's not like it is here in America where you can just throw a rock and hit a church window. There are not Christian churches there. There is not a single person to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And the question is, how are they ever gonna hear if we don't go? So my last sales pitch for summer teams. Um, yeah, you guys ready to get started tonight? Yeah, okay. Um, I'm just gonna tell you up front, I'm gonna just prepare your hearts. This is a heavy message. And so most of you that have spent enough time around me, you know that I love to joke around, I love to like have fun, uh, make light of silly things, but I'm not gonna do that tonight because we're talking about a heavy topic. Um, so just, yeah, put your seatbelt on. We're gonna go for a ride, all right? Um, have, has anybody in this room ever got anything wrong before? Anybody? Yeah, a few hand raises. Believe it or not, I've gotten a thing wrong before. I know that's surprising to most of you. Uh, not really. Um, but the question is, like, what happens when we get something wrong? Typically, it requires some form of forgiveness, especially when it boils down to relationships, right? If I get something wrong, and therefore I wrong somebody, what do I have to do? I have to ask for forgiveness. I have to seek forgiveness. But one thing that has really come to my attention just this year is, what happens when I get forgiveness wrong? <laughs> it's like, that's a weird thing. It's like, if I get something wrong, I ask for forgiveness, but what if the thing that I'm getting wrong is forgiveness in and of itself? That's hard. Here's the situation. I uh, had a close friend. About five years ago, we had this random falling out um, over a relatively insignificant matter. But at the end of the day, both of us were pretty set in our ways, right? So had a disagreement. We're both set in our ways. And slowly, over the course of years and years and years, we just drift apart. Um, but there was still just this unsettled issue between he and I. And I just, in my head, I'm like, you know what? I need to forgive him. So I know this is a Christian thing to do. I'm just going to forgive him. And so what did I do? I said, I forgive him. <laughs> You've been there. You know what it's like. Uh, you did exactly what I did, which was, I'm going to forgive and forget. I'm just going to say I forgive him, pretend it, it didn't happen, let it go away. How do you think that played out? It didn't. <laughs> because the reality is we can't forgive and forget. 
And if we try and forgive and forget, what we're doing is we're actually selling forgiveness short. Because if we just forget about it, then what even is forgiveness? There's nothing to forgive them for, right? But if we just say, I forgive you, but then nothing else happens, it just remains unresolved. Play this out with me. You're studying with a friend. They spill water on your MacBook. Yeah, oof. Um, and they say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Uh, let me buy you a new one. And you are left in this scenario where you can say, don't worry about it, I forgive you. Or you can say like, okay, buy me a new MacBook. <laughs> but if you say, I forgive you, and then you don't get a new MacBook, what's left? An unresolved issue. Because you used to have a computer and now you don't. So forgiveness can't just be saying something and not dealing with the debt. But here's another way that we can get forgiveness wrong, and here's a way I got forgiveness wrong. Just this year, I got a letter in the mail, a handwritten letter in the mail from this friend. And here's what it said. Essentially, I was wrong. You were right. I'm sorry. And that did crazy things in my heart <laughs> because I thought that I had forgiven this guy. I thought I had forgiven him, but getting this letter back, it was like, wow, now I forgive him <laughs> because I heard that I was right and he kind of like paid me back by saying I was right. But that's not forgiveness either, is it? If you, get, if you take out student loans, say 5,000, I know you're taking out more than that. Say you take out five, five grand in student loans, and then you pay it back, and the second you pay back your student loans, your student loan vendor's like, congratulations, your loans are forgiven. You're like, no they're not, I just paid them off. It's like restitution. That's not forgiveness. But we do it all the time. We say, man, forgiveness is, I'll forgive you once you pay me back, then we can be okay. We get forgiveness wrong. And it's one thing if we get forgiveness wrong when we're dealing with relationships with other people, but what happens if this actually begins to leak into our theology, our understanding of who God is, how God forgives us? What if God forgave like you did? Or what if you think God is forgiving you the way that other people have forgiven you? What does that leave you with? Chances are something far short of the forgiveness that God is actually offering you. And I believe wholeheartedly that if we get forgiveness wrong, we are dealing with a massive tragedy. Because forgiveness is foundational to the Christian faith. And so the question is, if it's not forgive and forget, or if it's not like forgive for a fee, how does Jesus forgive us? That's where we're going tonight. How does Jesus forgive? What is God's forgiveness like? How is it different? So you can go ahead and open up to Luke 23. That's where we're going to be tonight. Luke 23. Um, we're at a pretty crucial point in Jesus's life. Uh, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. God came to this woman, Mary, and said, hey, you will give birth to a son. He's going to be the son of God. 
God with us. He's going to come, and he is going to be the Messiah, the Savior. Jesus was born. He's lived up to just over 30 years at this point of perfect obedience. Even as a kid, he was like obedient to his parents. I know that seems unimaginable. He did it. Uh, He performed signs and wonders. We've seen that over the last several weeks as we just worked through the Gospels. Uh, Jesus is healing people. He's changing lives. He's turning water into wine, and he's revealing that he is, in fact, fully man and fully God. But we're at just such a crazy point in Jesus' life because in John 10, 18, Jesus says, here's the deal. I'm going to lay my life down. And it's not because other people are in control. I'm in control, and I'm going to choose to give up my life. So in the few weeks leading up to where we're at tonight, Jesus is preparing to give up his life. And here's what's happened. He's betrayed by his friends. He's turned over and arrested. He is put on trial. And Pilate ultimately puts Jesus in front of a crowd and he says, man, here's the deal. We got to execute someone. There's Jesus who is upending the religious system and is just creating madness or there's Barabbas and Barabbas is a murderer. So who do you guys want to kill? Who do they choose? Sunday school 101. Come on. They chose Jesus. Okay. So here's where we're at. Jesus is chosen over Barabbas to be sentenced to death, and that's where we pick up in verse 32. Um, I'm just going to read the first few verses. It says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they were crucified. They crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. There's a few things going on here that we need to unpack. For those of you that are are nerds about the Bible, I want you to just write down Isaiah 53. It's an Old Testament book. It's a major prophet. And for those of you that are maybe skeptic to Christianity, here's the reality. Isaiah 53 was written 100 to 150 years before Jesus was ever born, and it predicted this exact event that Jesus Christ would come, and as an innocent man, he would be killed with transgressors, lawbreakers. When the word, you see criminal, that means lawbreaker. So Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy that's pointing to him as the Son of God, Isaiah 53. But one thing that we can't just skip over is, what is crucifixion? If you've been around church, maybe you've heard about crucifixion before. If you're relatively new to church, you're like, what the heck is it? It says they crucified him and the criminals in verse 33. So here's what crucifixion is. And I told you we were, we were going um, heavy tonight, so just bear with me. Crucifixion was the ultimate form of execution in ancient days that the Roman government perfected. Its goal was to bring torture to its extreme and to bring shame to its extreme, and it was reserved for the worst of criminals. 
the worst of the worst. And so I'm just going to read through this with you. It's graphic, and that's the point. Um, if you're having a hard time focusing, I would just ask you to close your eyes and just allow this to really sink in, to think about what is going on as we just put ourselves in this passage. It says, the victim of crucifixion was first severely scourged or beaten, an ordeal that was life-threatening by itself. Then he was forced to carry the large wooden crossbeam to the side of the crucifixion. Bearing this load was not only extremely painful after the beating, but it added a measure of shame as the victim was carrying the instrument of his own torture and death. It's like digging one's own grave. When the victim arrived at the place of crucifixion, he would be stripped naked to further shame him, and he'd be forced to stretch out his arms on the crossbeam where they were nailed in place. The nails were hammered through his wrists, not the palms, but his wrists, where the nails kept from pulling through the hand. The placement of the nails on the wrists also caused excruciating pain as the nails pressed on the large nerves running into the hands. The crossbeam would be hoisted up, fastened to an upright piece that would normally remain standing between crucifixions. After fastening the crossbeam, the executioners would nail the victim's feet to the cross as well, normally one on top of the other, and the nail would be driven through the middle of the arch of each foot with the knees slightly bent. Again, the primary purpose is to inflict pain and torture. Once the victim was fastened to the cross, all of his weight was support, supported by these three nails, which would cause pain to shoot throughout the body. The victim's arms are stretched out in such a way as to cause cramping and paralysis of the chest muscles, making it impossible to breathe unless some of the weight was borne by the feet. So just think about this, just like this. And your chest is just caving in and the only way that you can breathe is to push off of your feet as you're just on a rugged wooden beam. It's a very, very active form of death, sliding up and down the cross just to fight for your breath. It says, in addition to enduring excruciating pain by the nails in his feet, the victim's raw back would be rubbing up against the rough up, upright beam. After taking a breath in order to relieve some of the pain in his feet, the victim would again begin to slump down. The action put more weight on his wrists, and again and again and again, the torturous process would begin. In order to breathe and relieve some of the pain caused by the wrist nails, the victim would have to put more weight on the nail in his feet to push up. Then, in order to relieve some of the pain caused by the foot nail, he'd have to put more weight on his wrists and slumped down. Crucifixion usually led to a slow and torturous death with some crucifixions causing death over the course of four days. Death was ultimately, typically asphyxi asphyxiation, that's a big word, suffocating to death as the victim lost the strength to continue pushing up on his feet in order to take a breath. That is what Jesus 
is doing. As we just look into the, the scriptures, you guys, the king of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, comes down and says, I'm going to choose this? Why? Why would, he, why would he ever do that? That makes no sense. This goes back to the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, where your Bible reading plan probably stopped in the beginning of 2020. God created a holy people who then sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And here's what, here's what God established. He established a, a ritualistic rule system essentially to say, hey, I'm a holy God, you're an unholy people, and this is how you approach me. You need to make sacrifices. So the Israelite people knew that they could not approach a holy God. And the only way for them to approach a holy God was to bring a sacrifice. And the sacrifice was a spotless animal. A spotless animal. A perfect animal from their herd. And to bring it to God and say, I know I've fallen short. Please accept this so that I can be in your presence. It's pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, the perfect Son of God, John 1 would say that Jesus was the Lamb of God, the one without blemish, right? Jesus is here to fulfill this word called atonement, paying for and making right our sin. You guys, we have a sin issue. If you were here last week, we talked about that. We all know that we have a sin issue because we feel rotten inside, <laughs> We're trying to cover it up by measuring up, by achieving good things. We know that we have a sin issue. So here's the deal. We deserve to die as a penalty for our sin. We deserve to die for the website we visited on Sunday. We deserve to die for the homework we cheated on on Monday. We, des we deserve to die for the judging on social media that we did on Tuesday. We deserve to die for the self-righteous attitude that we had even walking in these doors tonight. Man, we deserve death, and we know it. But Jesus died so that we wouldn't. We wouldn't die the death that we deserved once and for all. Hebrews 9.26 says, Jesus has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. No more sacrifices. No more animal sacrifices. For you and me, it's no more trying to measure up. We don't have to create a scorecard and measure up to God. He says, I'm the sacrifice, once and for all. It's not your connection group attendance. It's not how good you are. I'm the sacrifice. You deserve death, but I'm taking your place. Here's the other idea. We deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. That's not oftentimes talked about when we talk about Jesus' suffering on the cross. We oftentimes focus on this 
this physical suffering that I just unpacked for you, but the reality is God hates sin. And sin has to be punished. We all love justice. I think back to this summer with the George Floyd incident. We all watched that happen and we're like, something has to be done. That is unjust. We love justice. We want a proper verdict and we want punishment to be acted upon. But when we are the ones that are guilty and are standing before a holy God, the just thing is for him to punish our sin. And on the cross, we see God pour out his wrath, his anger, his hatred of sin on his beloved son. Jesus Christ, he pours out his wrath on Jesus, the wrath that you and me deserve. And 1 John 4.10 says this, it says, in this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means appeasing the wrath of an offended party. Your sin is offensive to God. And it deserves punishment. But here's the deal. His wrath for your sin was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. Number three, we are separated from God by our sins. I talked about that last week. With sin and shame, we sin and what do we instantly do? We try to hide, we try to cover up. We're like the chubby dude hiding behind like a small tree, right? It's like, dude, we, God's like, I see you, Adam. <laughs> I see you're hiding. And what he does with Adam and Eve in the garden is he kicks them out. Because he's saying, you are imperfect and I'm perfect and we can't be in the garden together, right? We deserve to be separated from God and we have been separated from God by our sins. But 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, the verse is right before it. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is dead and gone. The new has come. And 2 Corinthians 5.18 says this. All of this is from God, who through Jesus Christ reconciled us to himself. We need reconciliation. We need to bring, be brought back into right relationship with God. And the Bible says, this is how it happens. Through Jesus' death. We are brought back into right relationship with God by Jesus dying in our place, by him paying the price and taking the wrath that we deserve. And lastly, we are in bondage to sin. You guys, sin runs us. It rules us. Apart from Christ, we can't help but just satisfy the cravings of our heart. <laughs> I have a one-year-old foster child right now. And I got a text from my wife today that says, we're hanging out in the basement. He has all these toys and all he wants to do is hit the keys on my keyboard. <laughs> she works from home in a business setting. You can imagine a one-year-old hitting a keyboard is not very professional, right? And I said, here's the deal. He wants to do what he can't. He has freedom to run and do whatever the heck he wants in our basement. Crawl, maybe, not run. But all he wants to do is the one thing we tell him not to do. And that's what's true of us. 
our heart leans towards rebellion. And that showed up in my life time and time again. Our hearts lean towards rebellion and we become enslaved to the things that we boast about. Colossians 1.13 says this though, it says, he, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus in his death on the cross says, you used to be a slave to your sin. You used to define yourself by your popularity. You used to define yourself by academic success or you used to define yourself by your church attendance or maybe how moral you are. Enough. Isn't it funny to think that we can come to church and sin? That's not really funny, but it's all about our heart. And if our hearts are wicked, we can even walk in these doors and we can offend a holy God. And he's like, Jordan, man, stop. (laughs) You don't have to measure up anymore. I'm going to set you free from your desire to please people so that you can please me. You can please a holy God. He's transferred us out of this slavery to our sin and has made us subject to Jesus Christ. It's amazing. Guys, the forgiveness of God is costly. And when we apply this forgive and forget mindset, like, oh, God doesn't remember my sins. That's cheap. And what it does is it makes us not take our sins seriously. You guys, our sins were not just swept under the rug. They were driven through the wrists of our Savior. That's the reality. Jesus doesn't just ignorantly forgive our sins. He sees them, he runs towards them, and he dies to pay for them. God's forgiveness is costly. And with this in mind, we get a greater insight into the rest of this passage where we're going to see Jesus say two things. First, he's addressing a crowd, and then he addressed the criminals. So remember, when you're getting crucified, every breath matters. And it takes a breath to speak, right? So these words of Jesus on the cross are requiring him to do the up and down on the cross, So what he says really matters. And we need to lean in and say, why is he spending his energy and his breath on saying these words? Verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by Watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that read, This is the king of the Jews. Here's what's going on. Again, three things. One, Jesus fulfills the ethical standard that he has laid out to his disciples in his living, which is this. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. 
Let them wrong you, love them. And here's this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is fulfilling that ethical standard and he's praying to his father in heaven and he's saying, God, forgive these people. The people that have put him on a cross, the people that are mocking him, that are spitting in his face, that are offering him sour wine, making him associate with the poorest of poor. He's saying, forgive them because they just, they don't see that I'm the Messiah. That doesn't make them not guilty, right? They are still guilty of killing the Son of God, just like you and me. But Jesus is saying, forgive them. Number two, it fulfills uh, the prophecy of Psalm 22. So again, if you don't believe in the Bible, Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Jesus died, a thousand years. And here Jesus is fulfilling the exact words of scripture. That people are gambling over his clothes, that the leaders are sneering and mocking him. It was prophesied that this is exactly how the son of God would come and die. And number three, it sets up an incredible irony that plays out right before our very eyes. The leaders are subject to this Jewish thought that God saves the righteous. And so what they're doing is they're like, okay, righteous one, if you're so holy, why won't God save you, right? And they, they put this inscription above him, king of the Jews. In their mind, they're like, you're not a king. You're dying on a cross, Here's what a king looks like. A king is a ruler. A king overthrows government. A king delivers his people. And Jesus stays on the cross. Because here's the deal. Jesus is king. Jesus doesn't rule from a throne on earth. He rules from the cross. And he delivers people from the cross. He doesn't need to overthrow a government. He's here to overthrow your sin and death. That is the Jesus we serve. And he is the reigning king. So they can mock him all they want. They can say, oh, some king you are. Save yourself. And he says, nothing. He stays silent. And what does he, what does he do? He stays on the cross. As much as our sin put him there, his love kept him there. His love for you and me says, I'm staying on the cross. And we see this play out in his conversation with the criminals. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him. This is amazing. The other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence for condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies, Truly I say to you, 
today you will be with me in paradise. This is amazing. The irony takes full effect. The criminal on one side says, save yourself and us. He is, and he's not doing it by getting down. He's doing it by staying. He is saving humanity in his dying. And the other criminal, by faith, looks at this other criminal and he says, what is wrong with you? This man is innocent. You and me, we're guilty. We know it. And remember, crucifixion wasn't just for the dude that like stole a little bit of money. It was for the worst of the worst. The Bible doesn't tell us what these men did, but they committed a heinous crime. And he looks at this guy, he's like, we deserve death. Absolutely. This man does not. But what he does in his words, you guys, he says, Jesus, remember when you come into your kingdom. He recognized Jesus as king. He says, Jesus, you are king. And the crazy thing is, he anticipates the resurrection. He knows that Jesus is going to live despite dying on the, on the cross. He says, you're going to live. And when you live, someday, man, remember me. <laughs> remember me when you're in heaven. Paradise, heaven. Remember me when you're there. And Jesus says, today, today you'll be with me in paradise. What did that guy do? What did he do to deserve heaven? The guy lived his entire life as a rebel to God. He did nothing. All he did was spit in the face of Jesus in his daily living, but on his dying day, he looks and he sees Jesus and he says, you're king, you're innocent, I'm not. Would you just remember me when you're in heaven? By accepting the way of the cross, saving is exactly what Jesus is doing. And this guy, Jesus doesn't say, today you'll be with me in paradise if X, Y, Z. He doesn't make it conditional. He doesn't say, get off the cross and jump in a pool of water to be baptized. He doesn't say, okay, as long as you can prove to me 10 good deeds you did during your life. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Why? Because the man saw Jesus for who he was and he saw himself for who he was. That's it. Jesus' forgiveness is complete, you guys, and we cannot add to it. I said before we talk about this idea of like forgiving for a fee. I play into this all the time. I think that God forgives me, but yet I still somehow just try to earn his approval. One of the verses that I've memorized is Galatians 2.21. says, I do not set aside the grace of God because if righteousness came through keeping the law, Christ died for nothing. I'll bring it down a little bit. Here's God's grace. If I could measure up, all of Jesus' death was for nothing. Stop trying to measure up. You cannot add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
His forgiveness for you is complete in the work that he did on the cross. There's a quote. You guys know I love quoting old dead guys, preachers that are a lot wiser than me. A guy by the name of Thomas Guthrie. He says, The Bible, which ranges over a period of 4,000 years, records but one instance of a deathbed conversion. One, one only, that none may despair, but one, that none may presume. Thomas Guthrie is telling us today, in 4,000 years of Bible history, there's one deathbed conversion. Here's the point. You are not too far gone. (laughs) I am not too far gone. We have never run so far that God's grace can't reach us, but also... If there's only been one in 4,000 years of Bible history, we can't just sit and wait for our dying day. We have today. And as a dude that accepted Jesus Christ my junior year of college and spent my first two and a half years chasing the pursuits of this world and feeling absolutely empty, let me just tell you, you don't want to wait. (laughs) There's no point in waiting because Jesus came to fulfill what you're after. The forgiveness of God is costly and complete. That is forgiveness. It's costly and is complete. Jesus sees your sin. He acknowledges your guilt. The book of Romans would say that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, Christ came and died for us. It was costly. But in John 19, his account of the crucifixion, Jesus says some of his last words on the cross, it is finished. Maybe you've heard this before, but the actual Greek word is tetelestai. Say that with me, tetelestai, tetelestai. Okay, here's what that word means. One translation is it is finished but the Roman government would stamp taxes at the end of the year saying to Telestai, and what that also meant was paid in full. Jesus from the cross says it is finished, paid in full. He breathes his dying breath, and if you were to keep reading Luke 23, it says darkness fell over the earth, and the veil was torn in two. The veil was symbolic. To to go beyond the veil was to enter the presence of God. And Jesus dies and the veil is torn, opening up this invite to say, God is not contained by a temple. In Jesus' death, we have access now to a holy God. It's amazing. We hear this preached and it's like, man, how do we respond Because, man, we we would love to just reduce this down to a a one, two, three checklist, wouldn't we? How do we respond to this? The first thing we do is, is this word called repent. If my sins put Jesus on the cross, I need to start taking my sin more seriously. I need to see my sin as offensive. I need to see my sin as deadly. I need to see my sin as worthy of punishment. 
And I need to say to God, I am sorry. Help me pursue you. Secondly, we need to believe. And this word believe is thrown around a lot in American culture. It's not head belief. The word believe means trust. Trust that Jesus in his death on the cross actually paid the full price for you. Stop trying to measure up. Believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the third, maybe less fun um, thing that we want to hear, but if Jesus is our king, that means we follow him. We follow him. And we follow a crucified king. So you know what that means for us? We follow in his footsteps. We have to embrace the cross. Die to ourselves. That, that doesn't sound fun, does it? We are called to suffer. We are called to deny our own will and to pursue God's. And we are called to forgive other people. As I say that, is there a name that comes to mind? Maybe someone that you can't even imagine ever forgiving. If Jesus can forgive you, can't you forgive that person? Because no one has ever crucified you. Yet Jesus forgives you. Can you forgive them? Can you accept the debt? It's not going to be fun. It's going to be painful. It's costly. That's what forgiveness is. It's costly. But it's also complete. It, it pays the debt. It assumes the debt. It doesn't wait for repayment. And you guys, Jesus was able to do this because he had a bigger perspective on what was going on. Hebrews 12.2, it's another passage I would recommend that you memorize. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus was able to forgive in that moment, to die a criminal's death as an innocent man, because he knew what he was accomplishing. And he could approach that with joy because he knew he was reconciling God's people back to the Father. When we lack forgiveness, it's because our perspective is far too small. We're too narrow-minded to forgive someone because we're wrapped up in the here and now and we think that this life is all that there is to offer. But that's not true. We can forgive other people and it can have eternal impact. As I think about what it looks like to live this out, three things come to mind. One is that our hearts would be healed because bitterness does more damage to you than it does the person you're bitter against. That person probably doesn't even care. <laughs> 
they're living their life somewhere else, and they're probably happy, and you're still pissed at them. Guess what? Bitterness is a sin, and it will enslave you. And you can be a slave to your bitterness, and you can sit in your anger all you want. It's not making you better. It's killing you. You can let go of that. Because if Jesus has forgiven you, clearly your identity is secure, and whatever that person did to wrong you, Jesus has made right on the cross. You can have a healed heart. Number two, you can have restored relationships, first and foremost with God himself. The fact that we were distant, that we were separate from God, that he was rightfully angry at our falling short, Jesus came and he died. And he's bringing us back into relationship with the Father. If we would simply do exactly what the criminal did. I'm guilty. You're the son of God. I believe in you. That's it. We're right. We're in right relationship with God. But beyond that, it transfers to our relationships with other people. I don't know if you've heard this before, but they say the cross is both horizontal and vertical. Right? The horizontal beam, we're reconciled with God, but there's a vertical beam too, which means we need to be reconciled to other people. You can see relationships restored as, as Jesus transforms you. You can take that transforming power and restore relationships with other people. And number three, here's what happens. God is glorified. God is glorified. Because when I go and forgive this person, I'm able to tell them why I'm forgiving them. And I'm able to share this text. I'm able to share the reality of the gospel that Jesus Christ has made me new. Jesus Christ has forgiven me, and the only right response that I have is to forgive other people. We get to tell people the reason for our hope, the reason for our transformation. We get to invite them in. And if Jesus has made you new, it just makes sense that the only appropriate response is to share that good news with other people. This is a life or death matter. That's why I said getting forgiveness wrong is a tragedy. Because eternity's at stake. Would we accept the message of Jesus on the cross personally? And would we not let it stop with us? You guys, this world needs Jesus. I need Jesus. You need Jesus. And praise God, he came to us. Amen? Pray with me. Father God, we, we come before you as a broken people, as, as a guilty people. Man, <laughs> we know that we're not perfect. Um, even in the start of the night, addressing the question of have we ever been wrong? <laughs> we all know we have been, uh, but God... We don't take that lightly, because as we, as we see in the scriptures, our sin costs you the life of your only son. 
Jesus, that you would hang on a cross with nails driven into your wrists and through your feet, that you would endure the wrath of God, let alone physical suffering, because you loved us. Not because of how beautiful or put together we are, but in spite of our ugliness, in spite of the fact that we were enemies, Jesus, you came and you died. And the veil was torn. Jesus, you create a way for us to the Father. You invite us into this reconciled relationship with you we could be made whole, that our wrongs could be made right, that we could experience life. It's amazing news, Jesus. Help us to to fully grasp this immeasurable grace that you have laid out. And help us apply that in our lives this week. To forgive the people that don't deserve it because we didn't deserve it. To to take on the debt, to cover the price because you paid the ultimate price for us. Jesus, we need your help in this. Be with us as we worship. Help us fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before you, you endured the cross and despised its shame. And right now, you are seated at the right hand of God, reigning victorious. We love you. We praise you.